the Son, from John chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. Now, in our series in the Gospel of John, last week we concluded chapter 16. It's been a while, and we now arrive at chapter 17. We spoke on joy complete and mentioned three aspects of this joy that Jesus gives us. This joy that Jesus talks about is transformational. What does that mean? It means that Jesus doesn't say that the the sorrow that we experience in life would be replaced by joy, that will be consequential. No, he said that your sorrow will actually be the very thing that causes your joy. The other aspect of this joy from God is that it is prayerful because Joy is not something that you can just simply pick up as an extra, like you go shopping. Joy, in fact, is is not independent of a consistent spiritual life, a consistent prayer life. And it is peaceful because even though Jesus told us that we will have much trouble in this world, we need to cheer up because Jesus has overcome the world. And the joy described here is not uniquely Christian. In other words, you do not have to be a Christian to be a happy person. But you do, however, need to be a Christian to possess the kind of joy that Jesus offers. What's more, this joy is not hanging on thin wires like much of the, the things that we have. Our jobs, our family, our position, our careers, they're all hanging on very thin wires because they can be taken, they can be snipped very, very quickly and suddenly we feel fat. But no, the joy that Jesus gives is built on a solid foundation. Who He is. He is a solid foundation. Therefore, Because of that, we build our lives on him and we can withstand the storms of life. This morning, we move to chapter 17. And we will spend three weeks on this marvellous chapter. This chapter is referred to as the Holy of Holies of the New Testament. We are getting into sacred ground here if not uh, holy ground. It is here that we enter with our great high priest into the holiest of sanctuaries. Just imagine for a moment what the divine conversation between God the Father, God the Son and the Holy Spirit must be like. God the three-in-one. I wonder what deep conversations they must, that must take place between the members of the Trinity. The thoughts between the Godhead must be too profound, in fact unfathomable for us to comprehend. Yet here, here in John 17, God allows us to listen in on God the Son talking to God the Father in language 
in the simplest language that we can understand. Profound truths in the revelation that we are allowed to, to hear between God the Father and God the Son. And we get to listen in on that. That is a marvelous privilege. Now in the Garden of Gethsemane, we get a, a summary because that, that's all we get. And even that's amazing enough, isn't it? But here, it's this one-to-one conversation and the disciples are listening in as they walk towards the Garden of Gethsemane in that very last few hours before Jesus dies. Now, this is why some 500 years ago, uh, a reformer and friend of Martin Luther, he, he was named Philip, he was uh, Philip Melanchthon, said of this chapter, he said, There is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or on earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. The Scottish reformer John Knox was graciously sustained on his deathbed, on his dying days, when he had this great chapter read to him every day until he died. And J.C. Ryle, Bishop Ryle, said said of this chapter, is the most remarkable in the Bible. It stands alone and there is nothing like it. Now you know what I'm getting at. So this is pretty high praise. This is pretty high praise from these godly scholars and for good reason. It is indeed the longest prayer of our Lord. In it we can discern the the inner thoughts of his mind and learn much about his relationship with the Father. But this prayer is also the longest in scope of time because in the time that it covers because it, it, it stretches across 20 centuries from the time of the disciples that actually includes you and me, the believers. We're included in this prayer. We're going to get to that. Essentially, essentially, there are three matters that Jesus prays about here and this provides us the outline of the prayer and that's why we're going to look at it in th- over three weeks. Firstly, Jesus prays to the Father a prayer of consecration of himself for the sacrifice of Calvary. He prays for himself the task ahead, verses 1 to 5. Then he prays for his disciples who are are with him, that they may be protected, that they may may be sanctified. And that's from verses 6 to 19. And finally he prays for you and me who believe as a result of the witness of these disciples and their disciples that have all the witnesses since that time for the whole church down the centuries. Why did he pray that we may be unified in verses 20 to 26? Well, that's for later on. So this morning we're going to look at the first five verses. So what are they about? First of all, it's about assistance, verse 1. Assistance. 
After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. In prayer, when we pray, the usual posture that we are accustomed to is heads bowed and eyes closed. We learnt this from very early on, haven't we? Here, Jesus follows what was most likely the custom of, of that day. How does he pray? His eyes wide open rather than closed and he looks toward the heavens. How many of you have prayed like this? Yeah? It is... Uh, we're not used to it, right? But it, but it is, and, and, and it has to be a special setting. Uh, many times when, when we might be outdoors and, and contemplating a great sight, like some of the sights we saw this week when we were out in the bush, and, and just the marvel at the God's creation, you're, you wake up at night, maybe going to the toilet uh, out in the bush, and there is the starry host in all its glory. And you just go, oh my. <laughs> and you feel so, 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 so tiny. And Jesus prays with eyes wide open toward the heavens to his Father. And I suppose the practice of us of having Heads bowed is an, is an act of respect and, and submission to God. Sometimes we kneel and at other times we see in the scriptures prostrate, face down. Now, heads bowed is, is actually normal posture for greeting in Asian cultures. That's how you normally greet one another. Remember the, the story that Jesus told of the tax collector who would not even look up to heaven when he prayed. And eyes closed, he, he, he beat his chest because he was so ashamed and yet he came to God. And with eyes closed, I think it also helps us to clear the distractions and, uh, of course, you don't have to have your eyes closed to clear the destruction because even when you have your eyes closed, you're thinking about the, the turkey that you left in the oven or the, uh, the car that needs rego and uh, what you've got to do to the clothes that you have to wash and stuff like that. They tend to invade, don't they? And it's, it's hard to clear the clutter sometimes. And even as I was speaking to you now, you're probably thinking, oh, did I, did I feed the dog this morning? Did I lock the door? Yeah. I wonder if I turn off the lights in the car that I just parked. Um, you see? You know what I'm saying? It, it, it's really hard to absorb what God is trying to say to us. And, and, and even happens in prayer. 
Jesus, of course, did not have distractions when he was praying. Fully focused on his Father. The moment was too sacred, too special. The communion uninterrupted. That's why sometimes he actually went away from the crowds, from others, to a special place where he could pray. Fully focused on the Father, fully focused on the task at hand. In any case, the posture of the heart is more important than the posture of the body. Remember that. Remember that. And the hour for which Jesus came into this world has finally arrived. And during the course of his ministry, of course, Jesus often said, his hour had not yet come. My hour has not yet come. This was a reminder to everybody around him that he came for one purpose. And that purpose was to die for sin on the cross. And no one was going to delay or hurry his hour, his appointment with the cross. No one was going to hurry him up or nobody was going to delay it. The time was chosen, the time was given, the time was appointed. Now the hour has arrived with this, his imminent uh, betrayal, his imminent arrest, trial, crucifixion. His prayer, his prayer is for the Father to aid him, to help him in these last hours of life, that he might accomplish the task for which he came. He had every right to ask his Father for help, to glorify his name. His desire is to go to the cross, to die for sin, to satisfy the Father and then be glorified in being raised from the dead. And the important word here is the word glory, glorified, glory. And it, it is in these five verses, it is actually used five times. And eight times in, in all of the chapter, all of chapter 17. So we, we must understand what this, this term glorified means. Now the word glory in Hebrew means to give, to give weight, to give significance. In the Greek, in the Greek New Testament, the word means to make manifest hidden values, to make manifest the, the hidden riches. Jesus is glorified when he, he, he receives the ultimate praise or renown. Jesus never sought the praise of men like the Pharisees, but only the praise of the Father. Back in chapter 5, if you can remember back that far, Back in chapter 5, he said, I do not accept glory from human beings. That's verse 41. And I think we should do the same. In social media. How many times we put something up and then straight away check whether how many likes we receive? We're seeking approval, aren't we? We are seeking attention from men. 
even from an early age, we look in some of the little kids, you see them and Daddy, Daddy, they want to show, they want to show Dad, they want to get the approval from Daddy. And then when they become teenagers, they don't want the approval of Daddy, they want the approval of their peers, their friends. And then as we begin professional life, we want the approval of our community, the wider community, perhaps in professionalism, through a paper that we present or the work that we do or a bridge that we build, so that everybody can glorify us. Whose approval do we seek ultimately? The Father said that he doesn't, God said he doesn't share his glory with any other. doesn't share it. It's not for sharing. But us, we should seek the approval of our Father. I'll talk more about glory later on. Hold that for now. Now we move to verses 2 to 4, accomplishment. The next thing that Jesus prays about is the accomplishment. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you have given me to do. What is the ultimate accomplishment? Nothing more, nothing less than providing the only way for sinners to enter into eternal life. When Jesus died on the cross, of course, he cried out. What did he cry out? It is finished. It is complete. It is done. The telestai in, in chapter 19, verse 30. The price of eternal redemption has been paid in full. There is nothing more to do. The bridge of salvation has been opened. The ribbon has been cut. The bridge is open. Open for traffic. And Jesus is here speaking, interestingly enough, he's speaking in the third person. It's like he's standing back and he's, he's talking about himself. The Father has given him authority over all people. This will come by the means of the cross. And then he will tell his disciple in Matthew 28, what does it say there? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. The very same one who who we follow holds his hands, the reins of the nations, his sovereign over all, and all the forces at work, all the principalities and powers, all the powers of darkness, They cannot against our Lord. So this prayer has been fully answered. He has authority over everything. Who was it that said, 
there are no random molecules in the universe. No random molecules. In the cross, Jesus was glorified and his lordship was revealed. Now, an idea that is dominant in this prayer is, is eternal life for whom the Father has given, uh, for eternal life for all of those for whom the Father has given the Son. And this is another aspect of the doctrine of election that, is, that we find in Scripture. And he accomplishes this, he does the work and we receive the gift by grace. He does the work, we receive the gift, whom the Father has given. We are the gift, we, we receive the gift. The Father gives, we receive. And when Jesus prays in verse 3, he says, this is eternal life. It is equal to saying, this is what it means to have the gift of eternal life. Well, in our minds, we tend to think of eternal life as endless existence, the life without end. Jesus defines eternal life as, as what? As knowing God, which is an interesting description, isn't it? it it's, a, it's, it's an important aspect of it, but we don't normally look at it that way. According to Hosea, in Hosea chapter 4 verse 6, he says, God's people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. At the same time, the prophets, like Habakkuk, look forward to the day, look forward to the day when the, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It is obvious that knowledge that God is, is revealing to us here, speaking, Jesus talks about, is much more than just an intellectual, more than a, a cognitive knowledge. Eternal life consists in the knowledge of God mediated through the Son. It is a personal relationship with the one true supreme sovereign of the universe. So when you ask somebody, do you know God? And they say, yeah, I know God. I go to church every now and then. Yeah, Christmas and Easter. Is that what the knowing is about? Or is it more, yeah, I know God. He's my father. Do you want me to tell you about him? That's more what Jesus is saying here. And, and when the Bible speaks about eternal life, it, it, it is about our relationship with God, not merely the passing of time, which is quantity, passing of time, quantity, but also about the intimacy with God, which is about the quality of that time. What, what use would it be to live forever if it has no meaning, if it has no purpose? You know, blah, 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 blah. What, what are you going to do for the rest of eternity? It's about being with God. 
That's the quality. And this is why only those who hunger intimacy with God on earth will be satisfied to spend eternity in heaven with God. Therefore, I know that sometimes even when I've done funerals, especially when you don't know the person, or maybe you do know them, and I say, because one of the questions that people don't ask at funerals is, I wonder where Uncle Joe ended up. Is he in heaven? Or is he in hell? And, uh, hmm, I just simply look at their life, how they lived, And you say, no, he's in hell, basically. Who are we kidding here? Did they seek intimacy with God throughout their life? Well, if they did, nobody knew about it. Closet Christian, uh, camouflage Christians, is that the way that Christians are called to live? Camouflage existence, nobody knows what they believe, who they are? No. Did they seek the fellowship of believers? No. Did they seek to honour God with their life and what they did and even stand up to the current or they just like dead fish just flow down the river of the current and never stood up for anything? Did they seek a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? No. No, I'm not, I'm not judge, I'm not God. I'm just simply following what the scripture says, by their fruits you will know them. Isn't that what the Bible says? And Jesus says, He has given eternal life Through the mediation, through the cross, he gives eternal life. Where will we spend eternity? Is it in heaven or is it in hell? And as I ask that question, are you sure of your answer? If not, I need to talk to you. Let me give you two possible reactions from history. In 1636, 1636, 400 years ago, a group of Puritans founded Harvard University Its motto was Christo et Ecclesia, which means for Christ and the church. And this was one of the school's guiding principles. And and, and this was was the motto of of the, the expanded motto of Harvard University when he was founded. Everyone shall consider the main end of his life and studies 
to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, based on John chapter 17, verse 3. Now, that prestigious centre of learning and culture, of course, has long since abandoned its original spiritual intent. Uh, Even many Harvard school faculty members regard the Christian uh, roots as being totally antiquated, outdated, narrow-minded. In fact, not long ago, a group of Harvard students uh, actually staged a mock funeral procession through the Divinity School and they carried a coffin and proclaimed, Our God, the Father, is dead. Harvard University. Just simply repeating the, the words of Nietzsche, God is dead. That's one story. The next story, contrast that with the story of Arthur Stace. Arthur Stace uh, was a genuine convert. After leaving his life of crime and alcoholism, he was gripped by the thought that people without Christ are destined for a lost eternity. He could hardly write. He he was illiterate, basically. He, He didn't have an education. And he would rise up early in the morning and chalk the words eternity on the pavements throughout Sydney something he did half a million times. So, George, you actually seen the... Yeah. Eventually, he became known as Mr. Eternity. And uh, in the year 2000, these were the words that were written on the Harbour Bridge. And many people actually responded to his humble, humble ministry by putting their faith in Jesus because they were gripped by the words of this humble man. Despite, can you see? Despite his illiteracy, his intimacy with God, his relationship with God, he was gripped by the fact that people were going to hell and he wanted others to know God like he did. Because that was where he was going. Two contrasting stories. One, an intellectual institution, right? Where they're supposed to have learnt about God, knowledge of God. All cognitive, right? But no heart. And here is a man, very little intellect and yet full of heart for God. Can you see the difference? Can you see how God looks at the heart of man? Amazing, isn't it? Now, verse 5, assurance, the third aspect of of Jesus' prayer to the Father in the first five verses, assurance. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world began. I hope you can, in, in these words, you can sense the tenderness in the words from the Son to the Father. Jesus knew that after the cross and after the grave he would return to his Father in heaven and would once again enjoy the glory he had before 
he came to earth. In fact, before the world began, before the beginning of history, in eternity past, Jesus was going home. It's like uh, your, your kid's away and they send a message or a text in the old days, a postcard, I'm coming home, Dad. That's, that's the, the language here. And even though John earlier in the Gospel said, remember when he said, we beheld his glory? But even in... in, in beheld his glory, but it was a concealed glory, toned down. You know, the volume, the temperature, right down, so that humans could actually approach him, because Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.16, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. And yet in Jesus, in flesh, People could come and touch him and eat with him. And put that next to that verse that Paul gives us, that Paul tells us in, in 1 Timothy, if you thought that getting close to the sun is, is pretty dangerous, it is nothing compared to getting close to the one who created the sun. That is unapproachable light. It is glory. And here we begin we, we, we began with glory and we conclude with glory. So this passage verse five and verse one are like two bookends of, of this passage. The mutual glory of the Father and the Son. Jesus prays that the Father will glorify him and as a result of this glorification, Jesus will glorify the Father. It's, it's a mutual glorification here. Bless me, Father, so that I will, be a, I will be a blessing to you. Now we are inclined to pray for ourselves in many areas of our lives, for health, for work, financial pressures, for wisdom and direction. This is all warranted and we are. We can pray for ourselves. Not one of those things actually comes close to what Jesus is praying here for himself. He doesn't pray for his health, for his difficulties, for the social problems, for the fact that a lot of people hate him. Jesus prays that the Father's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Something that will be repeated again in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just a further walk down the road. And God will give him glory through the cross. Now I'm going to tell you a couple of stories. My daughter and I uh, spent a day in uh, a day and night in Egypt uh, earlier last year. 
And one of the, mainly in, in, in Cairo and just outside of Cairo, and one of the things that gets a bit monotonous uh, seeing the monuments of Pharaoh Ramses II. He, um, it is largely believed that um, he was the, the Pharaoh at the time of Moses and the Exodus. Now it seemed that his face, his figure and his name is plastered over, over half the, 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 the wall surfaces and that are still you know, in Egypt. And if you go to the, the museum in Cairo, it's, he's everywhere. You go to, to Memphis, he's, he's everywhere. And he reigned for a long time. He reigned for a very long time. And he, was, he had this insatiable thirst for glory. Some of the other pharaohs obviously built monuments like the pyramids and other things. But no, Ramses wanted his face. He wanted his statue. He was only five foot something. But yeah, he built these humongous statues of himself everywhere. For his glory. Of course, in Egypt, the pharaoh was thought of as divine. Well, let me show you some pics here of of Pharaoh. That's one of them, of uh, Ramses II. Next one. Yeah, that's with his uh, favourite wife, I think. Uh, The next one. There he is in the horizontal position. There's a bloke there, and this is uh, this is in Memphis, just lying horizontally. Um, his leg is not doing too well, um, but yeah, humongous figure. Uh, in the, now, the next picture I want to show you, if if you're sensitive, uh, it's a bit uh, morbid. So, children, you might want to close close your eyes. Okay, those of you who are sensitive. Uh, mums, maybe uh, just close the eyes of your kids. And this is how he lies in the museum in Cairo, also in the horizontal position. That's his mummy, mummified. That's where glory ends up for human beings. Okay, you can make all the statues all the monuments, all the buildings that you want. And this is the greatest pharaoh that Egypt knew. Look at him. Next. Now the glory of the Roman Empire was a backdrop to the birth of Jesus. In about 27 BC, Emperor Caesar Augustus ended uh, about 200 years of civil war and uh, finally, you know, they were getting their act together and they were starting to assert their their power. And uh, he began to, this building project all around Rome, run down neighbourhoods with, uh, started, you know, torn down and they started to build monuments and temples and arenas and colosseums and government complexes which uh, are in ancient Rome. Arguably, they were the most beautiful buildings that the world had ever seen. 
Yet behind the beauty of the empire, there was a history of brutality that continued until Rome fell. There were thousands of slaves and foreigners and revolutionaries, army deserters and, of course, Christians who were crucified on roadside poles, not in the public area but behind. And Nero and others would light the the Christians up, would fill them up with tar and then light them up for the evening as a warning to anyone who dared to defy the power of Rome. Let me ask you, where is the glory of Egypt and Rome now? Where is their glory? Empires come and empires go. And yet, a few years later, just a few years later, a child born in Bethlehem, to a humble family who worked as a carpenter, at the age of 30 he began to teach and did marvellous works. And because he was good, because he spoke the truth without compromise, He was tried, he was nailed to a cross and the empire continued, didn't they? They thought that, well, well this, this little pot little town in the backwater of the empire, what are they going to do? And yet Jesus' death on a Roman cross turned out to reveal an eternal glory that made the pride of Egypt and Rome and every empire since then like absolutely nothing, like nothing, less than nothing. Who could have imagined that in the public curse and agony of the cross we would find the eternal glory of the love, the presence and the kingdom of God displayed. An object of scorn and shame, God turns it around into display his glory. Who could could plan that? Who could plan that? It is no accident of history. And you see, this is why when John, the very same John who wrote the Gospel of John, is taken to another place, and, and he sees this, and, and, he, and he says this. He, see, he sees the what our first Bible reading this morning. He, he's there. He says, this is the cry. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Do not be fooled by the glory of man. It comes, it goes. For it is less than nothing when compared to the glory of God who alone is worthy to be praised.
Whose glory do you live for? Who is worthy of glory other than God? No one. No one. Amen.